Those are interesting words in that song we just sang. And I'll bet everybody here at one point or another can think back to a time when you were caught up in words and tangled in lies. And this was struck as we were singing with how much truth is embedded in the lyrics of that song. Well-known radio preacher and longtime pastor Chuck Swindoll says, the Bible never flashes its heroes or flatters its heroes. All the men and women of Scripture have feet made of clay, and when the Holy Spirit paints a portrait of their lives, he is a very realistic artist. He doesn't ignore, deny, or overlook the dark side of life. This morning we're going to launch a new series that features lessons learned from character sketches of some well-known and some unusual people from the Bible. While there are hundreds of people who are written about in the Bible, these characters are linked by patterns of brokenness in their lives. Why would we focus on a theme like this? Our world is full of people with broken hearts, broken spirits, and broken relationships. Sometimes we become, we become aware of the fact that we are surrounded by brokenness. Sometimes we go to great lengths to deny or to hide those areas where our lives ref reflect brokenness. In our world, broken things have little value, and they are often quickly thrown out. So broken people often feel that they will be treated in exactly the same way. And what we aim to show in this series over the next several weeks is how God uses broken people in surprising and even more in redemptive ways. So while the link from character to character has to do with this idea of brokenness, the underlying theme of this series focuses on the redemptive power of God as God confronts the brokenness in our lives and in our world. The first of these character sketches focuses on the lessons that we can discern from the life of Israel's King David. Few people ever match the drama of David's life. Beginning life as the youngest of eight brothers, a shepherd boy in a farming village, David rose to slay the giant Philistine warrior Goliath, become a wildly successful army captain who inspired songs about his exploits, and ultimately to serve as Israel's most loved king. Celebrated as he was, David led a dysfunctional family that was marked by all kinds of trauma, rivalry, rape, adultery, intrigue, and murder. One of the things that you start to realize when we read about characters like this is that the Bible doesn't present whitewashed pictures of perfect people who have everything together who are the people of God, but people who live in a real world that is dominated by the invasion of brokenness into our lives. According to the Bible, David brought much of this upon himself through an adulterous affair when he was at the height of his powers and of his fame. Yet David is described in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament as a man after God's own heart. So I have a question here at the outset of this message. How do we reconcile the devious and dedicated heart of David? Because at times it seems that David is the champion of all that is right, of all that is good, and there are other times we discover David at his most deceptive level. Here's the big idea that I want to get across. If you want to tune out and just get the one nugget, here it is. You can have it. Though consequences remain, God loves wayward people and restores those who repent. 
Let's walk through this character sketch of King David. The first thing that we look at is the idea of David's dedicated heart, that David's heart was dedicated to the Lord. And, and twice we find in Scripture that David is described as having a heart after God's own heart. What does that really mean? Well, first it shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, there in verse 14, uh, uh, the prophet Samuel is speaking to King Saul, who has messed up royally and who has been rejected by God. He will remain king, but part of the conditional promise that God had made to Saul, that his children would follow him, that his sons and for generations more and more people from his family would follow in the kingly line, that part has been taken away. This is what verse 14 says. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. In the midst of a battle season, Saul had been instructed to wait for Samuel, who was the prophet over all Israel. When Samuel was delayed for some seven days, Saul got restless, and he usurped Samuel's role by offering sacrifices in an attempt to keep his soldiers from scattering. Now, part of what Saul was supposed to do is wait for instructions that would come from the Lord God through Samuel to him, to Saul. But he got impulsive. Samuel announced that because of this disobedience to the Lord's direct command, that Saul had forfeited the blessing of being able to pass on the kingdom to his son. Instead, the Lord would raise up someone whose heart reflected God's own heart. We come to understand in just a few chapters later that this man was David and that even while David was only a teenager, God was already beginning to work in his life. The second reference to this concept shows up in the New Testament in Acts 13.22. There the Apostle Paul is preaching and in one of his very early sermons, he paraphrases this account from 1 Samuel chapter 13 that we just read a moment ago. Uh, here it says, after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Saul was making the point that the Lord had brought the Savior through David's line, through David's descendants. And so he brings up this choice that God had made of David in that time. So the phrase uh, that David had a heart after God's own heart rings out twice, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. And this phrase, if we really try to understand its fullness, points to a kindred spirit, one who shares the Lord's heart and the Lord's interests. This phrase began to show up in the English language through literature in the 1600s after the King James Bible became known. And there are a number of words, phrases, and concepts which soon spread into other literature that came directly from the Bible, and this is one of them. For most of his life, David's heart had cherished the words of God and the laws of God. Now, where do we see that play out in David's life? We get glimpses of David's heart most clearly in the Psalms. Now, I'll bet many of you have read at least some of the Psalms. You're aware of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and perhaps others. There are 150 Psalms that were written, and David wrote nearly half of them. Sometimes people uh, very casually assume that David wrote all of them, but that's not quite true. What you see up behind me is a, a whiteboard account of the breakdown of the Psalms, and 
David wrote 73 that we know of that had his name attached to them. Some of the Hebrew rabbis from earlier generations think that he may have written as uh, as many as 12 others. But there are a variety of other people who wrote some of the Psalms. Solomon wrote two, Moses wrote one, uh, Korah, who was one of the worship leaders in Israel during David's time, and Asaph, another worship leader, uh, wrote some. And then there are about 50 that aren't designated. There's no name that is attached to them. So it's possible that David wrote more than we know. In Psalm after Psalm, David praised the Lord and spoke of God's redemptive ways. Just for one short uh, snippet of Psalms, let me take you to Psalm 103. There are two sections here that I want to quote. David writes, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits. And then he starts to list some of the benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. A little while later, the same psalm includes these words. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, it's kind of fascinating. Through every era of the church, people have gone back to the psalms and have written songs based on these Psalms. Some of the, the modern songs that we sing around here come right out of Psalm 103. Uh, I think of a, a song that we were singing 25 years ago around here. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the Father's love. And, and that kind of concept rings true. The Psalms then reveal the inner workings of David's heart, not just when he was at his best, but through many of the moments and seasons of his life. He meditated on God's word, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes first thing in the morning. He led people in worship. He wasn't just a king who sat on the throne and was uninvolved. David immersed himself in the worship life of the church, praising God, proclaiming his greatness. And he even urged people to repent of their sins, trusting the Lord's compassionate and forgiving heart. So here's the question that I want to raise next. What happened to David's heart after God's heart? How did David get astray from that kind of spirit and from that kind of positive, powerful example? We can find that as we look at the pathway to David's demise. Several years ago, I took Dr. Haddon Robinson out to lunch. Uh, Dr. Robinson had been the president of Denver Seminary when I was a student there in the early 80s, getting my master's degree. And I was part of a hand-picked group that he worked with very directly, and and so I got to know him a bit. And after he left Denver Seminary, he took a post at Gordon-Conwell Seminary up on Boston's North Shore. And so I called him uh, during that first year that he was there and said, hey, can I come up and and buy lunch for you? I'd like to welcome you to New England. And over that lunch, we began to talk about a number of ideas, what I was learning through starting North River, what he was learning in his continued teaching. And he said, let me share with you something that I taught a a men's Bible study back in Denver about a year ago. And he took me back to the story of David. And And he said, how did David get to the point where David completely messed up his life with this affair with a woman named Bathsheba? And before I could say anything, I want, he said, I want to answer this for you. And he walked me through a series of alliterations, points that all began with the, word, with the letter A, 
in trying to uh, show the pathway to David's demise. Here's what he started with. The first word was achievement. Now, a number of us are, are wired for achievement. We, we, are, we are raised that way. We're trained that way to seek after the next challenge. And so there are a number of people, both men and women, who could listen to this and say, wow, that's me. I'm wired for achievement. I'm always looking for the next challenge, the next thing. And David was like this. David took on the assignments as a shepherd boy taking care of his father's sheep. The opportunity came a few years later when he was sent to bring food to his older brothers who were serving in the army. And he listened to this phenomenal Philistine giant who day after day would taunt the Israelite army and say, we don't need to battle it out with the whole group. Send me your greatest warrior and I will fight your greatest warrior hand to, in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And whoever wins, the people of that group, the army of that group will serve the other one. Well, this giant of a man was huge and intimidating and nobody stepped forward from the Israelite army. And David shows up, just a teenager, bringing food for his brothers. And knowing what he'd already faced in the fields as a shepherd, he started telling the stories of the time when he faced a lion and he chased off the lion, and another time when a bear came for one of those sheep and he chased off the bear. And he reasoned, if God was able to help me do all of those things, God is able to help me in this, situa in this situation too. And seeing that none of the soldiers would take on Goliath, he volunteered to take on Goliath. He was offended by the way that Goliath had not only uh, insulted Saul the king and all of the soldiers in the army, but the way that Goliath had insulted their God. And so David stepped forward. And you know the rest of the story. He, he slew the giant when one of his stones from his sling hit him right in the forehead, knocked him out cold, and then David finished the job with his own sword. After that, David became known, and he became a soldier in Saul's army. He climbed to the next uh, level of achievement, and his life just kept going through these pursuits of achievement. So many of us are like that, and we identify with David at least that far, that we're wired for achievement. I was raised that way to take on the next challenge, and so this speaks to me. The next A word that he shared with me was the word accomplishment. Years later, David followed Saul as Israel's king. He conquered all of Israel's enemies, defending and also extending Israel's borders. And that sense of achievement and then accomplishment led to a third A word. It's the idea of arrival. Arrival is when you start reading your own press and you say, wow, I've done something. Look at where I am. Isn't this good? This feels good. I finally got to the next level where I want to be, or I've arrived at the ultimate destiny, at the top of the mountain. This is where we find David at the outset of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Every spring, as winter snows receded, the armies of the nations around Israel would patrol their borders and they would often go to war. By, that, by the way, that pattern extended through military warfare for generations and generations until modern times when the technology that we have and the advances with machinery and, and trucks and all of that allowed people to not necessarily have to hold back in the midst of winter. Year after year, David had led his armies in these border patrols and battles. But this particular year that's written about in, in 2 Samuel 11 says... In the spring at the time when kings go off to war. 
In other words, the narrator of this book, this historical book, is telling us that this was the normal pattern, and this is what David had done through his entire reign. But then there was this one year when he felt like he'd arrived and he didn't have to go off to battle, even though the armies did. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, who was his commander, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. These are the signals in the story that the narrator is giving us that David had this sense of having arrived, this sense of arrival. He had arrived at a place and time where he didn't think he had any battles left to fight, and he let the soldiers go off without him. Often with that sense of arrival comes a sense of aloofness or even alienation. And so David was aloof from the best of his leaders who had served him for decades. He stayed in the city when all the fighting men were out to battle. And that's where he got into trouble. That sense of arrival and aloofness led to the fourth of these A words, adventurism. For David, that sense of arrival and aloofness meant that he was no longer satisfied by the thrills that had excited him in earlier times. The old thrills of winning in battle were no longer so important, and David stayed home. And a new opportunity for adventure soon appeared. One evening, David walked around on the roof of his palace. We're told that David lived in a palace. Palaces are usually buildings that rise higher than all the rest. You can see them from a long way away. And looking down from the roof, he noticed a woman bathing. Now, let's get a clear picture of what was going on here and what was not. David was on the roof at night, looking into the windows or at the porches around the city. David was the peeping Tom. I recently heard a man try to pin the blame on Bathsheba, saying that she was bathing on the roof. That's actually not what the text says at all. She wasn't on the roof. David was on the roof. And he noticed her. Could have stopped there. But then David sent one of his servants as a messenger to do some investigative work. Find out who she is. He was intrigued. The messenger came back after doing a little bit of sleuthing and said that she was Bathsheba, the wife of one of his mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. David knew exactly who Uriah the Hittite was. You might not. It's a, an obscure name that's buried in the Old Testament. But there were about 30 men who were considered to be David's mighty men. These men had joined David's band of renegades in the years when he was fleeing from Saul and when King Saul wanted to kill David. Some of them were mercenaries from other tribes and other nations who had risked their lives in battle alongside David. They were drawn to David because of his, his heroism, because of his victories, and because David was the kind of leader they wanted to follow. And they had all pledged their allegiance and had risked their lives in battle alongside David. Uriah was one of the commanders of his army who was off with Joab doing his job while David stayed behind. Now, then Dr. Robinson inserted the fourth of these A words, adultery. And what he was saying was that this didn't just happen. It didn't just appear as an instantaneous thing. There was this process that David walked through. And that process of arrival led to adventurism. And in that spirit of adventurism, David lurched into adultery. When David heard that this was Uriah's wife, the whole pursuit should have stopped there, and it could have. 
It was a warning that was given by one of his messengers saying, David, we know who this person is. She's the wife of one of your best of the best. But instead, he sent more messengers to bring her to the palace, and he slept with her. When Bathsheba later sent word to David that she was pregnant, he had another opportunity to try and make things right in some way, but instead he engaged in a cover-up. First, he called Uriah home from the battle with the story that he wanted a report from Uriah about what had been happening out on the front. And after receiving Uriah's report, David urged Uriah to go home and to sleep in his own bed and to sleep with his own wife. But Uriah, a man of honor, refused to sleep in the comforts of his own bed and with his own wife while his men were sleeping in the fields at night. And so he slept at the doorway to his home. So David had him brought to the palace for a second time, and this time he threw a banquet for him, and he brought out the wine, and he got Uriah good and drunk. And then at the end of the night, he said, Uriah, go home to your own house and your own wife and sleep in your own bed. But Uriah still refused to sleep in his own bed while his soldiers were in the field. So the next day, David sent him back to the battle with a note to the commander of all of Israel's army, Joab, to send Uriah up to the front of the battle where the fighting was the thickest. And then when the battle was raging, to call the other soldiers back so that Uriah would be left exposed out front and he would die. At David's instructions, Uriah was abandoned when the fighting was thick and he was killed in warfare. David had covered up his own coveting, his own adultery by arranging Uriah's murder. And forevermore in the Bible, it is spoken of as a murder that David had arranged. See, what we learn through all this is that, that though consequences remain, God loves wayward people, and he restores those who repent. The question hanging in the balance was, what would David do once he was found out? King Saul, who had just been removed from the throne, when he was caught, made all kinds of excuses Blamed it on other people, blamed it on the soldiers, blamed it on Samuel being late. What would David do this time? And so the passage that Riley read for a few moments ago tells of the prophet Nathan coming to David with that confrontation. The Lord had revealed to Nathan exactly what had happened. I'd like to pull out some lessons for long-term faithfulness for you and me from the story of, of David. Here's the first one. Make sure we are where God wants us to be at all times. You might think at a small point, what strikes me in the early part of the telling of the story in chapter 11 is that when all the rest of the soldiers went out in the spring to fight, David stayed behind in the city alone. And therefore, all of his advisors, all the people who kept him straight, all the people who would speak truth into his life were out there somewhere else. They were not with him in that moment. The lesson I take from that is you and I need to be doing the things that God has us to do. And when we wander from that path, when we become aimless and we stop focusing on the next part of his individualized mission for each of us, we're capable of losing focus of a lot of things. And we get caught in the same trap that David did. Here's the second lesson for long-term faithfulness. Our devotional patterns need to be current. We can't live off of the past history. 20 years ago, I used to read the Bible every day or I used to pray every day. We need that continual reinforcement so that we are walking with God 
on a daily basis. We need to remember that Christianity is not just a system of beliefs that we either intellectually agree with or don't. It's a way of life. And we are invited into a way of life where we draw near to Jesus every day and where we allow his words to sink in on a daily, continual basis. That's when we are clearly walking with him and when we are at our best. So it wasn't enough that David was a great worship leader in the past. It wasn't enough that David had written so many of the Psalms. He'd moved away from the healthy patterns of life. A third lesson is beware of ignoring warning signals in your life. I find when I read this story again, there are warning signals all around David. The first was when David's messengers mentioned the name Uriah the Hittite. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew who was hurting. And he went ahead anyway, ignoring the warning signal. And as he moved deeper and deeper into his own deception, David began to ruin the lives of people around him. Fourth, realize that God still loves wayward people. When you find yourself having crossed some kind of boundary that you never thought you would, realize that David, David was still loved by God and God loved him enough to send Nathan into his life to directly confront him. Sometimes that's the way that God loves us, by bringing somebody into our lives who delivers those words of tough medicine. And Nathan confronted him with very specific sins that only could have come from the Lord's revelation. Even Nathan's rebuke toward David was a sign of God's continuing love and his concern for David. And the last lesson is that repentance starts the cycle of personal revival. We need that concept of repentance to be repeated in our lives from time to time. The classic difference between King David and King Saul has to do with the time from being caught to the change of heart that leads toward a change of mind. That's what the word repentance means, to have a change of mind that leads to a new direction. And while Saul made excuses, David repented. Though consequences remain, God loves wayward people and restores those who repent. Now, in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And I thought, this is a great time for us to reflect on where we're at with the Lord. And so I thought to set this up, what I'd like to do is read Psalm 51, which is the psalm that David wrote after Nathan confronted him. It's the greatest um, expression of true repentance that we find anywhere in the scriptures. It says at the beginning, in the notes for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here's the way it starts. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, draw, uh, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and, and sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, you who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David speaks those words that lead to a personal inner revival. And one of the things that I, I was thinking of in preparation for this is how God prepares us. Every time we share communion together, one of the things that this practice does is it gives us the, the opportunity to go before God and to seek that inner revival, that, that personal restoration of the soul that he longs to bring into all of our lives. So I'd like to start off our fall season together by us sharing communion and giving you some quiet time to think about your relationship with God and asking him to renew that spirit and that, that contrite heart in each and every one of us. So I'm gonna ask that you would hold the elements as we pass them. We practice an open communion here. That means you don't necessarily need to be a member of North River, but you do need to have a faith in Jesus as your savior so that you understand what we're doing here. time we do this, the gospel of God's good news is pictured. 
that God sent his son into a broken world to be broken for us, that we might be made new on the inside. And even today, if that understanding breaks through to you in a new way or for a first time and you put your faith in Jesus, this can be one of those moments where you exchange your trust in him and he takes your sins away as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, God, that Jesus has come into the world. When we eat this, we acknowledge together that his body was broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of him. same way on that night, Jesus went on to explain to his disciples that this was his blood also spilled for him, that this was the blood of the new covenant, that there would be sacrifices made for them, but this was not something they understood at the time. But today, now, and here, we can fully understand and appreciate what it is that Christ did for us when his blood was spilled for this new covenant that we have. that night Jesus looked over his disciples and with the cup he said this is the cup 
my blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. David, can I call an audible for how we close? A minute ago you were playing the chorus of How Great Thou Art. Can we just do the chorus of that? Yep, just hit a note and we'll do we'll it. Sings my soul, my Savior God, to God, we're looking forward to a great fall together.